Hi, MSNBC's Ali Velshi here, and I've got great news. We're launching a new podcast called Velshi Band Book Club. By now, I'm sure you've heard all about the book banning epidemic sweeping the nation, with some 1,500 titles banned last year alone. But do you know the specific stories that have been banned? The Velshi Band Book Club transcends news coverage of the bands themselves to focus on the literature and the authors who've been targeted. Stay right here to listen to the first episode featuring my conversation with two crucial authors, David Levithan on his bestseller, Two Boys Kissing, and Garrett Conley on his award-winning book, Boy Erased. You can also search for Velshi Band Book Club wherever you're listening right now and follow the series. In the weeks ahead, we'll dive into even more important literature and conversations with authors. But for now, here's episode one. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the first meeting of the Velshi Band Book Club. I'm Ali Velshi. Pick a school district in any state, red or blue, and more likely than not, the teachers, librarians, parents, and administration there have been embroiled in a furious debate over a book during a Tuesday night school board meeting. This is not good material. This is, this is pornographic. This is indoctrination. It's sickening. I'm sure we've got hundreds of people out there that would like to see those books before we burn them. They're sexually explicit. They're pornographic. They're disgusting. I'm disgusted just looking at them. I want you to start focusing on education and not public health. What exactly do you think our kids are learning from this book? The vitriol is not letting up. The fight over free and fair access to books is only intensifying, and the stakes are getting higher. Our friends at PEN America, a nonprofit advocating for free expression, recorded nearly 1,500 instances of books banned in the 2022 to 2023 school year, the highest since PEN began tracking book banning more than two decades ago. Overwhelmingly, the books that are targeted are those by and about minorities and LGBTQ individuals. The rest? Books that grapple with women's bodily autonomy, including sexual assault and rape, and books that deal with mental health. But those staggering numbers are not what pushed us to start the Velshi Band Book Club. It's the stories. The gaping hole that those missing books leave behind for would-be readers, for students who crave wider horizons, and for young adults who so badly need representation and understanding. Removing books that deal with those very real and very important topics, racism, sexual identity, bodily autonomy, and mental health, sends a clear message to those would-be readers. You do not matter, and your experiences and identities should not be explored. Removing those books hurts our children in the classroom and then as adults in our communities. Parents and organized conservative advocacy groups, those voices we heard a few moments ago, are getting it wrong. They metaphorically, for now, burn these books under the guise of protecting their children and preserving their innocence. But in a world where the Internet is in every single student's pocket, that's just not a real argument. Removing books from library shelves and syllabi is about eliminating how a black child might safely deal with the threat of police brutality by reading Nick Stone's Dear Martin. 
It's about making sure the one LGBTQ plus student in the AP English class doesn't gain confidence by reading David Levithan's Two Boys Kissing. It's about censorship. It's about political gain. It's about control. So how do you resist? You read. That's what we're doing here on the Velshi Band Book Club, reading as resistance. The people who seek to destroy access to crucial, sometimes even life-saving literature are certainly not reading these books cover to cover. We are. We're exploring Toni Morrison's masterful command of language. We're evaluating the power of illustration in a graphic novel. We're looking at moving characters, and we're doing it together. We do not call this a culture war, though. Librarians, teachers, and school administrators are not willing soldiers. Syllabi and library shelves are not battlefields. But members of the Velshi Band Book Club are keepers of freedom. They are resistors. We want to hear from you as the podcast goes on. All of your thoughts, your comments, your reactions to the upcoming books and authors. Send them to mystoryatvelshi.com. The first episode of the Velshi Band Book Club takes a look at two LGBTQ plus authors and their stories, David Levithan's Two Boys Kissing and Garrett Conley's Boy Erased. There are so many novels and authors we could have started with, but it's so important to honor a community and its literature that is so wholly under attack. Many of the people in favor of removing access to these books would like to see a time where LGBTQ plus people are forced into the shadows. We are not going back to that time. We are resisting, starting with these two amazing books. Keep listening. Harry and Craig have an idea. They're going to protest a recent homophobic incident by kissing for 32 hours, 12 minutes, and 10 seconds until they've broken the world record. And they're going to do it in front of their entire high school, their families, and rolling cameras. It's an act that's both political and personal. Harry and Craig's story is just one of four separate narratives that weave together to create David Levithan's Two Boys Kissing. The award-winning young adult novel is today's Velshi Band book club feature. Two Boys Kissing is one of those skillfully written novels where the plot is not fully indicative of the story actually being told. The novel grapples with freedom, equality, intergenerational mobility, and community through a tender coming-of-age lens. The reader is not alone in observing the impact of that titular kiss. The book employs the use of a literary device, a Greek chorus. The ghosts of a generation of gay men who died in the AIDS epidemic function as an omnipresent collective narrator. We meet them first before any other character on the first page. Quote, we are the spirit burden you carry, like that of your grandparents or the friends from whom your childhood, who at some point moved away. We try to make it as light a burden as possible. We were once the ones who were living, and then we were the ones who were dying, end quote. Based on true events, Two Boys Kissing explores that all-too-real burden, one of hatred, rejection, and blatant homophobia, but just as the chorus says, manages to keep it light. Even in the face of tragedy, the book is characterized by its optimism and its compassion. The future is undoubtedly brighter in the world that Harry and Craig and Ryan and Avery and Peter and Neil and Cooper live in. Two Boys Kissing has been frequently challenged for bad, topping the American Literary Association's top 10 list three times in 2015, 2016, and 2018. Targeted for banned because of its cover alone. 
In 2014, the parents of a child at one high school in Virginia argued that the cover imagery on the book violated the school's rules against public displays of affection. Why do schools have rules against public displays of affection in the first place? But that's another topic. She did eventually open the cover of the book long enough to count the profanities. Ten uses of a profane word that starts with F and rhymes with duck. A recent graduate who identified himself as a member of the LGBTQ plus community responded to the call for removal by describing the power of two boys kissing and other similar books in a letter to the school board, writing in part, quote, the books were very poignant to me. My librarians helped me to broaden my horizons. I didn't have to sit around and think that I was so alone in this school. I have to reference the imagery of the chorus in Two Boys Kissing once again, because that boy from that Virginia high school, like the boys in Two Boys Kissing, is not alone. Even if he has yet to find a community, even if he's felt ostracized or shamed or hated, he's got authors. He's got fictional characters. We've seen it again and again. Books can save a life. I am thrilled to be joined by David Levithan. He's the author of numerous award-winning books, including Velshi Band Book Club feature, Two Boys Kissing. David, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me here. Uh, this is a, a great book, and it's based on a true story. When you get challenged, when somebody wants to ban this book or have it removed from a library, does it matter that it's based on a true story or not? I mean, I don't think it is. I think my book hits the list because it's called Two Boys Kissing. It shows two boys kissing on the cover. It contains more than two boys kissing inside. And so, yes, historical record, the fact that it is based on intergenerational and a generation of of um, men who, who died from AIDS looking down at the current generation, none of those subtleties matter. They just object to two boys kissing. I was mentioning in the introduction that it's, it's optimistic and has a, a lightness to it that you wouldn't expect based on the description of the book that I gave. If you were writing the book today, would you be as optimistic in the way it was written? I think I'd even be more optimistic because I think one of the things the older generation in the book realizes is that the younger generation has their act together more and is going to experience more freedoms than they ever imagined. And even though adults are trying to get in the way of what they do and what they read and who they kiss, that they will still triumph. And I believe that with every ounce of my heart. We talked about the Greek chorus. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's prevalent. You, you hear from the Greek chorus before you hear from any other, other characters in the book, starting in the introduction. Tell me about that as a literary device and why you chose it. When looking at my books, I, I was startled that I had not engaged yet in sort of the older generation. My uncle um, lived with AIDS for over 35 years, and I was obviously exposed to him and his friends and, and, and what they went through. And I really liked the idea of what their generation would see when they saw the generation below mine, so the internet generation, and honoring them. And part of the lightness of the tone is because that that's how they lived life, that it wasn't all seriousness. It was defiance and humor as well as struggle. The struggle's different today, right? Yes. Something has morphed. Uh, it has become once again central because of bans, because of so-called culture wars. So on, on one hand, students who struggle with this, readers who struggle with this, it can save lives. People can say they're not alone. On the other, they are more targeted in school environments than perhaps we've seen in the last couple of decades. Yeah, the, 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 the conflict has turned from an internal to an external yes. one. That, yeah. that used to be that you would doubt yourself and doubt who you are. But now I think the younger generation, they do understand who they are more. But 
there are adults who are resisting it. And, and that's what we see with these book challenges and with this legislation that's happening. At one point in the book, Tariq gives his friends a bust of Walt Whitman and reads the poem, We Two Boys Together Clinging. We Two Boys, is that tied to the title? Is that, is that where the title comes from? Absolutely. It was, it's actually what I love about the intergenerationality of the book is that the Walt Whitman poem inspired a David Hockney painting that I saw in exhibit at DC when I was down there for my best friend's wedding. And just seeing that and saying, we learn from each other and we build on each other. That's what this is all about. And, and what I do in writing Two Boys Kissing, there are already kids who read Two Boys Kissing when they were a teenager who are writing novels and creating art themselves inspired by it. And that is how we grow and that is how we change. Were you surprised uh, at, at challenges to the book or not? I mean, did you write it and design that cover to be provocative? My first book was called Boy Meets Boy. So I knew I was getting so into by calling evolution. a book. Yeah, two boys kissing. No, I knew that there would be resistance. It would be easy to sort of try to hide it away, call yeah. the book something else and yeah. let people find it secretly. But I love the power of a kid walks into a library or a school, sees that book on the shelf, and they know they're represented. They so exactly. you're a member of a team of writers now where books get challenged. Yeah. Should that team grow? In other words, is it is it good for the literary world that books are written and get challenged? Because there are viewers of mine and there are bookstores all through New mm -hmm. York where you walk by and there's a banned book section and people just buy those books to say, hey, what'd you ban that for? I want to read right. it. Right. No, please support them. No, what's amazing is when I started, Boy Meets Boy was published 20 years ago. If you had censorship panels, there were basically the same six authors who yeah, were always yeah, on sure. them. Now there are so many authors being challenged. I mean, the pen says that in the last year of challenges, 1,800 authors and illustrators had their books challenged. 1,800. I see that figure, and I'm not afraid of the challenges. What I am is I'm proud of publishing. I'm proud that we have that many authors writing books that people are afraid of and writing that many about that many identities that people want to try to silence. But 1,800 authors, you're not going to silence us easily. So are people less tolerant, or are we writing more books that challenge people? We're writing more books that challenge people. And I think there is a politicization of it that was not there even five years ago, that now we are in the eye of that storm where it has become political. And people who otherwise don't really care, they see that they can gain power by attacking us. And so they're just doing it for their political motive. You work for Scholastic, a publishing company, in addition to being an author, the book Melissa yes. by Alex Gino. You actually acquired and edited that book. I did. I did quite proudly. And again, it's just amazing because Alex was speaking for readers that had not heard their voices in that age level literature before. Okay, and Alex is queer and transgender. And that's yeah, just right. not that clear how you're going to find books like that if you identify the way Alex does. Our literature evolves very quickly. And 10 years ago, there were some voices that weren't on the shelves. And so we as publishers and as editors, we have to find those voices and we have to empower voices like Alex's to write the stories that are true to their heart. And that's exactly what Alex keeps doing. And it, it resonates. So that's amazing. You're writing books that are getting challenged and banned, and you're involved in the acquisition and publishing of books. Yeah, we're, we're on your the thing. same team, yes. So you are a walking, talking, banned book yeah. guy. <laughs> David, thank you. I appreciate the book, and I appreciate you coming in here to talk to us about it. Thanks so much. David Levithan is the author of Two Boys Kissing. We're going to take a quick break here, and then a conversation with Garrett Conley on his award-winning autobiography, Boy Erased. I don't want to give anything away, but this book centers on Conley's time in so-called gay conversion therapy, and yet it's still a story of love and forgiveness. Don't go anywhere. Hi, everyone. 
everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. For members of the Velshi Band Book Club who have not read today's second featured book, a memoir called Boy Erased, or seen the movie adaptation, I'll give you a quick synopsis that some of you may find hard to hear. In 2004, when author Garrett Conley was a freshman in college, he walked through the doors of a conversion therapy center, ironically named Love in Action, in an attempt to cleanse himself of his homosexuality. His parents, devout missionary Baptists, had given him an ultimatum conversion therapy, or exile. Conley grappled with his sexuality in secret, believing in no uncertain terms that a ring of hell was reserved especially for gay people. Just five pages into Boy Erased, Conley writes, quote, despite my secret wish to run away from the shame I'd felt since my parents found out I was gay, I had too much invested in my current life to leave it behind, in my family, and in the increasingly blurry God I'd known since I was a toddler, end quote. Conley was outed to his parents in the most unimaginable way. He was assaulted and raped on his college campus, and his assailant called his parents and told them that he was gay. Boy Erased is written using flashbacks between Conley's two-week stint at Love in Action, the conversion therapy camp, and defining moments in his life leading up to the so-called treatment. The American South and Connolly's fundamentalist Christian community serve as the backdrop. You'd be forgiven for thinking that conversion therapy is a dark blight on America's past, something thrown away long ago, but you'd be wrong, very wrong. In fact, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at drying up federal funding for conversion therapy. It's not an outright federal ban, though. A study backed by the Trevor Project, an LGBTQ anti-suicide advocacy group, found that around 650 million dollars is spent on conversion practices every year. This number includes payments from many private insurance companies as well as Medicaid. Yeah, Medicaid funds gay conversion therapy in this country. However, Boy Erased is much more than just a shocking expose highlighting the atrocities of conversion therapy. It's actually a beautiful and achingly raw memoir that grapples with the complex necessity of family the role that religion can play even in a modern world, the power of forgiveness, and of course, identity. It's also a story of survival, physical and emotional survival. It should come as no surprise to Velshi Band Book Club members that Boy Erased has been targeted for bans. In 2017, the book was included on a list of 850 titles that Republican State Representative Matt Krause of Texas wanted removed from library shelves and reading lists across the state. 
Boy Erased was far from the only book that explored LGBTQ themes on that exhaustive list. Our own internal list of banned books has title after title of sexuality and gender literature, memoirs, fiction, and verse. It's a chorus with which we are all becoming familiar, but one that does not drown out the song that books like Boy Erased can sing. I'm thrilled to be joined by Garrett Connolly, author of the memoir, Boy Erased. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I hope we did justice to the book in our introduction. Uh, that was beautiful. And yet, when you read it, the impression you get is that, that it was you versus your parents, and yet I open your book and the dedication is for my parents. Yeah, I mean, I think marketing can sometimes shape the way people you know, approach a book, but right. um, I was always dedicating it to my parents. Interesting. Were you were you surprised? Because I'm now not. I'm, I was always surprised by anything that was on a banned book list. Now I can predict what's going to be on a banned book list. So all of a sudden, <laughs> when your name shows up on uh, Texas Congressman Matt Krause's banned book list, were you surprised? I mean, I guess surprise is a strange reaction yeah. you know, these days. But um, right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I grew up sort of um, hearing about, you know, LGBTQ books being banned. I would have to sneak to Barnes and Noble and go to the the gay and lesbian section and find Edmund White's book, for example, A Boy's Own Story. And um, I would sort of sneak it. Sometimes I would put another cover on the front of it to sort of hide that I was I was reading it. So no, I'm not I'm not uh, surprised by any of this. Should it be? Should it be off of kids' reading lists? It's graphic. It's yeah. difficult. Um, I, I don't think it should be off of kids' reading lists because I think kids are going to find a way to read literature that that might be above their age range. Possibly more so when they're banned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, should it be taught in high school? Maybe not. Um, but you know, I have lots of stories where people have emailed me and said. I found this book when I was 16 and it helped me think through these thoughts. And even one email I got from one student, um, when the book came out in 2016, he said that he found the book and he had wanted to commit suicide. And when he read the book, he no longer wanted to, which is wow. such a, I mean, to get that email right when your book comes out. I mean, when this book came out in 2016, no one was really talking about conversion therapy. There were very few bands in the United States. Well, and, because people didn't really... Yeah, they didn't know what it was. Yeah, they they had no idea what it yeah. was. I didn't think this book was even going to reach certain people. Um, but when I got that email, I was just like, okay, well, I guess I can rest now. Yeah, you never have to sell another book. <laughs> yeah, that's, it doesn't that's, matter. That's, that's if the somebody whole said they're not going to kill themselves because they read your book. Yeah, I know. It was it was pretty insane. To Does the idea that someone would have taken their life because of this surprise you? And how much did that occur to you? when you were struggling through all Yeah, this. I mean, I wrote a lot about this in the book. I, I was very, you know, suicidal before uh, even going into conversion therapy. And then conversion therapy is kind of like a crucible that just builds on all of the horrible feelings you have as a gay kid growing up in the South and, and a lot of stereotypes that exist. You know, we were seated with people in therapy that were dealing with bestiality, with pedophilia, with all these other issues that should have been separate concerns, right? right? Um, but these are stereotypes, right? So people say, okay, if you're, if you're a teacher and you're gay and you're teaching kids, maybe you're going to be a predator. Ugh. And these, these stereotypes get up and walk on two legs, right? Like they, they become realities the more that we use them. And I always talk about this, you know, you can be sitting at the dinner table with somebody in your family who says, well, what's next now that we have marriage equality? Are we just going to have marriage to animals? You know, and Ugh. people laugh, right? That maybe they're like, oh, that's the weird uncle. But then I'm sitting there next to someone dealing with bestiality and right. being told that it's the same thing, which is just incredibly harmful. You know, you can't recover from that. 
you're an educator now, and I'm a business journalist, so I see the $650 million that we, we apparently spent on <laughs> yeah. conversion therapy from insurance companies and Medicaid, which means more money was spent than that. Is there a return on investment? Is there any part of this that was useful or good? No, no. And, and in fact, the conversion therapist who ran my camp, John Smith, is now married to a man living in Paris, Texas. And you know, happily making furniture with his husband. Wow. Yeah. And we, <laughs> that's a big fail. Well, it, it you know, or a big success. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's a huge success because now it's a big um, fail for the conversion yeah, therapy. Effort. It is. And, you know, now he's helping me advocate for ending conversion therapy. So go back to that, uh, the dedication to your parents. You said you were always going to write it uh, for your parents. Compassion and compassion for your family and empathy is a major theme in this book. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. And, and, and was that a natural outcropping? Because you must have been really mad. I was for a little while. I mean, mostly just disappointed, you know, as, uh, as my parents might have said to me at one point. I was there in, in the therapy session the last day before I left, and they were asking me to sit across from an empty chair and imagine my father sitting there. And they said, you need to show us that you hate him because obviously the stereotype is that a gay man must hate his father, right? There's like Freudian stuff in there. And I said, I don't hate my father. I don't feel that way. I feel sad that we're disconnected. And um, they, they just kept saying, you're not telling the truth. And luckily, I had read 1984 by this point and, you know, learned that words could mean their opposite and they could be used in a, in a certain way to brainwash people. And I was like, this is not what love is. You're calling yeah. yourself love in action, but it's actually hate in action. Right. Um, and uh, and I stood up and, and left the auditorium. And that's when my mom came to get me. And uh, And I just remember thinking, like, this is not. This is not how you show compassion. I was taught compassion, and then suddenly it was taken away from me. You know, my parents made a mistake. They'll be the first to admit that. But they also taught me compassion and love. Yeah. And they provided for me, and it was a wonderful life until that happened. Yeah, you actually, you paint them in a very positive light in the book. There was one scene with your dad early into Boy Erased, which, which struck me, and it reads... When I was very young, seven or eight years old, I would wake from my scripture-inspired nightmares and walk the hallway to my father's bedroom to stand at the edge of his bed and wish him awake. I thought he should have understood me without the need for words. Uh, this is on page 53. The desire to be seen and understood by one's parents is just universal. Yeah. And you can't wish totally. it away. No. I, I mean, I think sometimes toxic relationships can um, poison you to such a degree that there's no, right. there's no way to get back, you know? But luckily, my parents are compassionate people. And the religious experience that I had, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-religion. Mm-hmm. I'm anti-fundamentalism, which is any literal interpretation of any text uh, that is often based on just one person's idea of how it should be read. That is incredibly dangerous when you use that either for legislation or, uh, you know, in the training of your kids. I think that uh, I just, I never felt that the Bible was really about hatred. I felt that it was about compassion and love, and and Christ is a perfect example of that. If one just reads the headline of the book, you might think that you're really angry with religion because religion and and your parents' uh, initial failure to accept who you were led you to gay conversion therapy, which was a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. But you don't hate religion. No, I mean, hate requires a lot of energy. (laughs) Um, and, And I also feel that religious experience is something that I I can't erase from my own identity any more than I can erase my queerness, right? Like, I used to pray to God every single night until I was 18, until I went to conversion therapy. And it was my conversion therapist who really cut that off for me. 
um, who broke that line of connection that I felt. And um, I guess even out of stubbornness, I don't want to allow that to happen, you know, and I don't know really what I believe, but I have a spiritual side to me. Mm -hmm. And um, and I find because I grew up with the Bible, I basically got it memorized. Hmm. Verses just come into my head, you know. Like, Interesting. Um, and and they're helpful. I think a lot of the the verses from the Bible are incredibly helpful. And I think any religious text, uh, most religious texts have encoded knowledge, right, passed down from generations of people. And to throw that away is just silly to me. So you're, you might be a perfect person then to comment on the moment we are in in America where our interpretation of our Constitution is in mm-hmm. some cases falling into the hands of people who take a very literal interpretation yeah. of Scripture, of religion. At the moment, it may seem that religion is the enemy of certain freedoms in America. Yeah, I think it's fundamentalism again that that is the enemy here. And I think that we make a big mistake if we think that it's just religious people who think this way. Um, fundamentalism is something that can go across political spectrum. Um, it can invade anyone's thinking. If you believe that you are 100% correct and are unwilling to listen to anyone else who has a different opinion on it, it doesn't mean you have to change your opinion. It just means that we have to be able to sit down and have a conversation about issues. Understandably, in many cases, it's going away because we're all you know, feeling attacked. I feel attacked. I know many of the women in my life feel very attacked right now. It's not for me to decide how people should react, mm-hmm. but I do feel like it's a mistake long-term if we just blame religion for this. You were raised in the South, in Arkansas, uh, in a religious environment. Talk to me about the cultural bigotry that you had to, to fight to get where you are. Uh, well, you know, until I was 13, I didn't really notice anything was off. Mm. Um, I remember I was sitting in a Sunday school lesson And a man came into our classroom and said, you need to sign this petition because there's going to be a gay pride parade and we need to say that we're against it or whatever. And and the petition went around the room and everyone was signing it. And when it came to me, I was thinking, I'm the biggest hypocrite if I sign this because I know I'm attracted to to other men. But if I don't sign it, everyone's going to realize something's off or they're going to target me. And so I signed it. And I still regret doing stuff like that. In high school, there was one kid who was openly out. He got treated like absolute crap. You know, it was, it was really bad. And, and in order to avoid that, it was like I joined in and made fun of him. Not to an extreme degree like some of my peers, but definitely, you know, when people would say things, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, um, not like that. <laughs> um, probably not very convincingly. <laughs> I, I think that I had to navigate that. But one thing that I think is really important to know about the South, and you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the South. I live in Atlanta right now teaching. It's an incredibly diverse mm-hmm. place, and there are pockets of people who are, I think, working really hard to make sure that these anti-abortion bans, the LGBTQ bans that are happening with books, uh, go away. You know, that, that we help people who are in need, and there are so many communities like that people that I know that are fighting that fight and really putting their money where their mouth is. And and I think that that gets sort of swept away. In, in our own prejudices about what the South is. Yeah. I mean, when I was first coming to New York to do talks for Boy Erased, people would come up to me and they'd say, well, I would never do that to my child. I would never. And I think that comes from a really great place. Mm-hmm. I'm happy for that person that they would never do that to a child. But I also think that that unfathomable attitude, like... Mm-hmm. It's, it's dangerous because if we think we can't do what other people are doing uh-huh. that's bad, 
then we might be susceptible for some other bad. You know, like I didn't murder someone, but I I can imagine murdering someone. I can imagine doing something terrible, right? And if we can't imagine it, then I think that we're more at risk. So let's keep on going down this road of empathy, of which there is a great deal in your book, compassion, empathy. How empathetic or compassionate can you be toward people who don't have tolerance of you and your life? Because that's what a lot of the book is. You're, you're dealing with people whom you love, for whom you have compassion and empathy and love, and yet they fundamentally did not want to appreciate or accept who you are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a question of boundaries. You know, you have to have personal boundaries with people who are going to hurt you. The minute my parents started saying, I think I made a mistake, that was when I knew there was an opening. And that's when compassion can be used. Does that mean they won't hurt you again? No, they could. Loving is always a risk, right? Loving anyone, uh, whether or not it's a partner or a parent or some other relative or a friend, right? It's You open yourself up to love and it hurts sometimes because people can be disappointing. You can be disappointing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm disappointing to other people. So to me, that's just the bargain with living. Otherwise, you shut yourself off to everything. I want to read something from the book. Um, You create a a genogram, an illustrative family tree, in which you say hereditary patterns and sinful behaviors in our families. It doesn't trace out genealogy so much as the history behind our sinful behavior. Then you go on to label members of your family by their sins, drugs, gambling, abortion. Um, And this is the moment in which the therapy becomes clear to the reader. It's used as a turning point for your mother. Can you explain a little about that? Yeah, I mean, for my mom, she didn't even know this was happening, by the way. Like, my dad didn't know that they were asking us to label everyone in her family. And and according to, you know, these sins that they have decided are sins, right? right? Gambling, abortion, et cetera. Right. Um, and so this, this genogram was used. First of all, genograms are an actual therapeutic practice that's pretty normal to trace patterns of abuse in your family. But in this case, at Love and Action, they were used to kind of tell you why you were there, right? You could look at your family tree and you could say, okay, well, here's an H next to my name for homosexuality. I must have gotten that from like some combination of my uncle being a drunk and, you know, gambling that one time. It, it's it's complete bunk, right? It's, it's ridiculous. But the idea behind it is very dangerous that it's like the stereotype of therapy sessions that we just blame our parents for everything, right? So we were basically being told to blame our forefathers for for everything that we'd done and how we ended up there. When my mom found that out, you know, when I told her they're they're basically saying this stuff, I think it it made her realize that this stuff was crazy. She had never once questioned their qualifications. Right. That was when I knew that I could write the book. I was interviewing my mom for the book, and she said, from the age of 16, I never questioned. I married your father at 16. He was 19. Um, my dad asked for permission from her father. Like, this is how far back in mm-hmm. the patriarchy we are. She'd always listen to what men said in her life. And so whenever dad called Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, I always called him out because they still haven't apologized for it. They gave him pamphlets for love and action. And my mom just said, okay, well, I have to do what these men in my life said. She knew when she started seeing me coming back to the hotel every night after therapy sessions that something was changing in me, that I wasn't the same son that she once knew. And I think that instinct kicked in. I really think that what I learned from this experience is you can rationalize anything. You can make all sorts of complicated genograms and genealogies and whatever you want to do, whatever bunk you want to throw at you. But 
that instinct, that, that knowledge that the person you love is in pain, that's the thing you have to listen to. Anytime you see someone just being erased in front of you, probably it's not, it's not a good situation for them. Take them out. Talk to me about the choice to make this a memoir. Obviously, it's real, and that's probably the obvious answer, but it could have also been fiction, and you could have worked other stuff in. Tell me about how you decided to do it. Did you just start writing it? Well, I tried to write three or four novels before this, not about this subject. In fact, most of my life, I would just say things like, oh, I went to conversion therapy, didn't work, and turn it into a joke because I didn't want to deal with it. But every book that I was writing was some sort of dystopic world in which people's belongings were taken away from them. And even if it wasn't dealing with sexuality, it was dealing with identity. And they all kept falling apart halfway through. And I think, you know, I still am a fiction writer. Right. My next book will be out in maybe a year or two. But for this, it was like the only way I could tell it was to tell it the way it was. Got it. And that was so strange to me because I don't like, I don't like writing nonfiction. <laughs> I'm a nonfiction professor. I shouldn't say that. But, you know, I just, it's painful for me to write nonfiction because I, I always want to escape. Right. I want to do something right. else and have fun. I was teaching full time at a high school at this point and when I was writing Boy Erased and I was writing it from 4.30 until 7 every morning, taking a shower and then going and teaching all day. And it really had an effect on me. I had to go back into all these memories. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly just be up in front of students teaching like a normal Beyond. human being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Uh, thank you for thank sharing you. this with me. And thanks for being with us here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Gary Connolly is the author of Boy Erased. Uh, it is a fantastic read. And he is the newest member of the Velshi Band Book Club. And everyone listening out there is a new member of the Velshi Band Book Club, too. I'll say it again. Please contact us at mystoryatvelshi.com. A book club really isn't anything without its members. We're covering two heartbreaking and raw novels for our next meeting of the Velshi Band Book Club, All American Boys by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Keeley, and Dear Martin by Nick Stone. Black, minority, and LGBT books are disproportionately targeted for ban in this country. We'll be digging into the books, of course, but also why it is so important to read stories that confront racism and celebrate black identities through literature. Thanks so much for listening. You can also catch Velshi on MSNBC every weekend at 10 a.m. Eastern. The writer and producer of this podcast is Hannah Holland. Our booking producer is Lily Corvo. Associate producers are Chanel Adams, Nicole McReynolds, Samantha Brown, and Jen Maris Perez. Production assistant is Eunice Atacoya. Our senior producers are Jared Blake, Dina Moss, and Alicia Conley. Rebecca Dryden is our executive producer. Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Our audio engineer is Cedric Wilson. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the Senior Vice President for Content Strategy at MSNBC. Search for Velshi Band Book Club wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. 